When I retired, with lots of newfound available time, I enjoyed many travel opportunities. This podcast may encourage you to visit, revisit, or experience virtual armchair travel, learning about exciting new venues. Travel is an excellent vehicle for lifelong learning. Welcome to the What Travel Writers Say podcast. I'm Mike Keenan, your host, and today we circumnavigate Newfoundland. Well, almost. Tall crane eases one of 20 lightweight Zodiac's rigid hulled inflatable boats attached by rope from the top deck down to the sea below. Our landing party of 12 sets out for the distant rocky shore yearning to discover what? In reality, it's ourselves, magically integrated, pristine nature in its elemental form, which never fails to quicken my spirit and reminds me that we are part of the cosmos, existing in a delicate balance that demands respect. Beaming Jason Edmonds, my Zodiac driver, declares, I love this expedition travel to small bays and coves that are usually inaccessible. Indeed, during this expedition, I thrill to the screech of birds amassed on rock, past glacial blue dappled icebergs, hear the deep thrust of air from a passing whale, watch our ship's foamy wake, feel the undulating sea, trek on jagged rock amidst vast stunning landscapes, and bizarrely experience companionship amidst solitude. Captivated, I care not about email, Facebook, nor the nightly news. Adventure Canada's expedition is not a stroll along the Champs-Élysées, nor a saunter down 42nd Street. It's the realm of immediacy and chance encounters with beluga, polar bear, caribou, moose, and a skinny red fox that I watch slowly stalk a gannet colony, enough fowl there for its lifetime. Far more than a cruise, it's navigation with examination. A Norse landing at Lanso Meadows, thousand years ago. Basque whaling ships, immense cod stores dwindling, fishing villages emptying, and Newfoundland poet E.J. Pratt, son of a Methodist minister who penned erosion in 1931, which I studied in high school, but only now fully appreciate. It took the sea a thousand years, a thousand years to trace the granite features of this cliff and crag and scarp and base. It took the sea an hour one night, an hour of storm, place the sculpture of these granite seams upon a woman's face. In the St. John's hotel room, as rain pelts down outside, 145 expectant travelers peer at red, orange, yellow, and green, worst the best, colored ice charts, projected by trip leader Matthew Swan, who employs Google Earth to chart our progress. We are supposed to circumnavigate Newfoundland, but the Strait of Belle Isle, the narrow nine-mile-wide passageway between Newfoundland and Labrador, is packed with ice. 
We must alter course, proceed south instead, swing around the island and hope that the ice has shifted when we near Lanceau Meadows in the northwest. In rain we board Ocean Endeavour, 451 feet long, weighing 13,000 tons and flying a Bahamian flag. The 198-passenger ice-class vessel is chartered by Adventure Canada in summer to sail to the Canadian Arctic and Greenland. Originally the Konstantin Simonov, named after a Russian poet, it was built in Poland and served as a Baltic ferry for a Soviet shipping company, but now is converted with several decks for photography and a pool and hot tub as well as a sauna and gym. At 6 p.m., the ship is guided by pilot from calm St. John's Harbor through the Narrows, and suddenly we bump into the violent Atlantic, like riding a bucking bronco. Taking photos from the aft deck, I require help to get back safely inside, where passengers wear round patches on their necks and wrist bracelets to combat seasickness. It's rough, but everyone reacts well to the potholed seas and our dramatic change of course. We report to muster stations and are assigned lifeboats. Whale sightings announced, we spot two icebergs. At supper, table and chairs are bolted to the floor. There are many singles on board, primarily women, and the demographics reflect an age range from a young family with two pre-adolescent children up to several octogenarians. Plastic ID cards are scanned for every departure and return. I am outfitted with light rubber boots, a slim PFD, and a personal locker in the mudroom where we dress for wet or dry zodiac landings each day. The staff is composed primarily of Newfoundlanders, passionate, knowledgeable, warm, and welcoming. They soon address us by our first names. Barbara Doran, a writer, director, and producer of both documentary and drama, shows us her film The Grand Seduction in the Lounge. Hilarious, it's about a small Newfoundland fishing village which lures a doctor to their community. Jerry Strong is a musician, as is educator Tony Oxford, and the Once, a trio from Newfoundland, Phil, Jerry, and Andrew, play for us nightly. Kevin Major, who has published 16 books and won a Governor General's Award for his first book, Hold Fast, lectures on history. Writer, storyteller, and geologist Paul Dean is a former Assistant Deputy Minister of Mines and Deputy Minister of Environment and Conservation. Pierre Richard is a marine biologist who describes whales and dolphins. He cracks me up when I ask him the highlights of his day. Spotting a Wilson warbler, he immediately replies, Sakuma Maizeljo, hereditary chief, Mayapek First Nation, says, Newfoundland is a place the Creator made just for us. It's that special. Slowly but surely, we are immersed in all things Newfoundland. Next morning, we are greeted in bed with a song accompanied by a harmonica played by Tony Oxford, musician, singer, raconteur, and humorist. Over the ship's PA system, it's part of our 7 a.m. daily wake-up routine that I grow fond of, Tony's comical take on daily activities. Our second day, 200 kilometers south of St. John's, the ocean is placid, and we land at St. Bride's, population 600 primarily of Irish descent. 
It takes 35 minutes by coach to Cape St. Mary's to visit a bird colony, one of six breeding areas around Newfoundland. 24,000 gannets nest on bird rock, a 100-meter-tall stack of sandstone, as well as 20,000 black-laid kittiwake, 20,000 common muir, and 2,000 thick-billed muir. We get as close as 10 meters. Most migrate to the Gulf of Mexico. April 20, 2010, the BP Deepwater Horizon disaster claimed the gannet as the third most oiled bird in the largest environmental disaster in U.S. history. Gene Knowles, our naturalist, stresses that this reserve was codfish rich with an abundance of food for all of the birds. She helps us spot the gannet by its faded gold head and fencing behavior, rubbing bills in a greeting ceremony. They live for 20 years and raise one chick per year. With a six-foot wingspan, I watch them fly effortlessly like kites, seemingly for the pure joy of it. We witness some remarkable dives. Another daily ritual on board is a Newfoundland quote, and on our third day at Garia Bay, I learn that if you scald your arse, you have to sit on your blisters. Every evening and throughout the day, we are offered lectures in the lounge. Craig Minnelli, representing Nikon, explains storytelling through photography, and he allows us to borrow multiple cameras. On day four, we visit Cox's Cove, once an abandoned village after Confederation, when Premier Joey Smallwood tried to amalgamate the smaller outposts through resettlement in the 50s and 60s. There are 650 people here, primarily lobster and crab fishermen, and most show up to greet us. We learn how well Newfoundlanders deal with adversity. With only two days warning of our change of course, the mayor and townspeople organize an afternoon of entertainment in their town hall post office, offering music, dancing jigs, and square dances, local food including delicious berries and moose, and for me a bonus drive by a volunteer named Basil to the nearby falls in the mink farm where they house 50,000 of the smelly creatures. Today's Newfoundland idiom is Long Mayor Big Jib Coil. They also learn the typical terse Newfoundland fisherman greeting when encountering another with, What are you at? The correct response being, This is it. After Cox's Cove, Ocean Endeavor transports us to Port O'Shaw, Lance O'Meadows, Bonnie Bay, Grosse Morne, Francois, Con River, the French island of St. Pierre, and back to St. John's. I'm thrilled to navigate where Captain James Cook sailed 250 years ago. We receive more humorous wake-up songs with harmonica accompaniment from Tony, and how could one not succumb to Newfoundland and Labrador's merriment with geographical names such as Black Tickle, Chimney Tickle, Tickle Cove, Tickle Harbor, a definite tickle fetish, Blow Me Down, Come By Chance, Conception Bay, Cupids, Dildo, Happy Valley, Heart's Delight, Little Heart's Ease, Muddy Hole, and Virgin Cove. Day 5, we take a 20-minute Zodiac tender to Port Oshawa to visit a natural history site, the lighthouse at Point Rich with thousands of fossils on the beach and the French Rooms Information Center adjacent to ancient burial grounds where 113 people were unearthed on a dig for a movie theater. Day 6, sea ice restricting us, we take a two-hour school bus ride 
to the Lancel Meadows Interpretation Center and the Norstead site, the original Norse settlement populated by plucky Vikings who predated Columbus. It's miserably cold, 9 degrees centigrade, and rainy, yet I'm thrilled by the only authenticated North American Norse settlement. We follow a boardwalk and observe indented earth configurations that indicate myriad structures found there. In the 1970s, this 1000 AD Norse gateway to Vinland, discovered by Leif Erikson, became one of the first UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Two intrepid Norwegians, the Ingstads, found it in 1961 and excavated until 1968. Their clinching relic for authenticity was a Viking metal cloak pin. We visit sod homes with sparse accoutrements, modest weaving displays, a working forge, and Viking tools and nails for Snorri, a ship named after the first-born Norsemen in North America. Reenactors provide history reflecting the Norse courage and risk-taking, qualities that made it impossible for them to live in peace with First Nations, who, with superior numbers, handily defeated their white foes, surely a first in North America, before guns and gunpowder were available. Day 7, another highlight. We land in Bonnie Bay to take in Gros Morn. Bask for large mountains. Kevin, a Parks Canada Discovery Center guide at Woody Point, loves this peculiar land. He explains that glaciation occurred several times, forming the narrow, spectacular fjords. The Canadian shield is our bedrock, and Gros Morne is the Earth's mantle thrust upward through its crust. These tablelands are one kilometer high, about 16 kilometers long, and Kevin recalls that NASA scientists ran lunar landing vehicle trials here amidst Gros Morne's moonscape. Day 8, as Ocean Endeavour enters Francois' stunning fjord, passenger Bill Mitchelson, a UFT professor, exclaims, What a view! Anything else is anticlimactic. We tour their tiny community of 100 people. When Genovese explorer John Cabot sailed here in 1497, the Grand Banks were known by Portuguese sailors as Terra dos Bacilhas, or Land of the Cod and Cabot's crew employed a weighted hand baskets to scoop fish from the water. Fishing communities like Francois sprang up along Newfoundland's coast, prospering until the Cod Moratorium in 1992. The highlight today for retired teacher Glenna Hempfell from Windsor, part of a Rhodes Scholar contingent, is an impromptu tour of the local school with its 10 students. On day nine, Traveling through the Bay d'Espoir inland at Con River, we sample a taste of the Mi'kmaq culture in Mayapukek, where Chief Maizojo asks if we want to hear a warrior cry. He dramatically holds one arm to his forehead and makes weeping noises. When laughter ceases, he describes his successful struggle with government bureaucracy to achieve self-sufficiency for his people, and he leaves us with two vital truths. Exult every day and never stop learning. Next, it's the French islands of Saint Pierre and Miquelon with their 6,500 inhabitants, many employed in government jobs. French gendarmes served three year terms here. Earlier, Pierre Richard, no relation to the rocket, suggests we join him on deck at 6 a.m. 
the Passamuffin colony at Grand Columber Island. I choose sleep. We explore St. Pierre where horses run free. Many cars navigate the narrow, steep roads, and the Hotel Robert exhibits Al Capone artifacts from Prohibition smuggling days. We enjoy an historical bus tour, learn that two-year-old potty-trained children may attend school, spend euros at a coffee shop, and marvel at a huge airport that strangely does not support any flights to France. We finish back at St. John's, reminding me of poet T.S. Eliot's We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Thanks to my Adventure Canada expedition, I know Newfoundland for the first time. Cedar Swan, their young CEO, argues, We have an incredible team, scientists, biologists, anthropologists, musicians, and artists. We run the best expeditions in the world. I agree. I'm enchanted by the people in tiny fishing villages spread around the island, gentle, resilient, and deeply connected to the land. Tony Oxford at Cox's Cove Honorary Newfoundlander Ceremony cites four key characteristics of a native. Intelligence, truth, nerve, and rhythm. The latter we witness in jigs and square dances. Gene Knowles, our naturalist, observes, you come here and discover that people are warm and kind and open-hearted. And her observation is the very heart of the musical Come From Away, depicting Gander's gallant response to 9-11. I suggest that you come from away to explore the charming province of Newfoundland and Labrador. And yes, indeed, I would happily return there again. Here's some extra notes on our ship, the Ocean Endeavour. The Nautilus Lounge on Deck 6 is equipped with a grand piano, bar, and dance floor, and is employed for lectures, music, and audiovisual presentations. Coffee and tea are available in the companion Aurora Lounge throughout the day. A small store features Inuit carvings, art, clothing, books, and miscellaneous items. Upon landing, bikes are available for rent. Compass Club on Deck 6 is a cozy retreat with a library, comfy chairs, cookies, 500 consumed per day, and other snacks. The Polaris restaurant can seat all of the passengers at once. Breakfast and lunch are buffet style, and the food is fresh and delicious. There is a mudroom with lockers for each passenger to store PFDs, rubber boots, and gear for excursions. There is a complete set of 10 different cabin offerings. We were in a twin cabin with single beds, a window view, 220 volt or European plugs, TV, Wi-Fi, a personal safe, walk-in shower, and ample space but limited storage. 35 to 45 percent of the cabins are usually singles. 15 have hardwood floors for allergies. Many people prefer midship and lower decks for stability. Only a few make a change when on board. There's a good mix of categories and price ranges. People start making decisions first with price in mind, and often a window is the next criteria. After that, there are many reasons for cabin selection, proximity to an elevator, etc. Eckhart took us on a tour of his galley, which is fully computerized. There are 25,000 items involved in the ship's total provisions, including fuel. And the galley amounts to 5,000 items. 40% of bottles are white wine out of 8,000 total bottles of wine. 
Use as local fish if possible, and flour and pasta are from Europe. He told us an amusing story of Mars bars being endorsed by a German soccer star on TV. So on one voyage with a lot of children, the chocolate bars disappeared quickly. He recycles food, so for example, after serving us lobster one evening, he prepares lobster bisque soup the next day. 250 meals are served in 30 minutes. 17 tons were loaded by hand in St. John's. Eckhart even shared a few cooking tricks. Use kiwi the night before to soften steak with its vitamin C. After grilling, allow the steak to sit five minutes, then cook it low in the oven for five minutes. Delicious. Use a cube of ginger when doing a duck fry and lemon sauce with fish as well as vermouth. He started at age 14. His dad owned a restaurant and he literally worked his way up. He has incentives for his crew. For example, one job that pays $900 goes up to $3,000 with a promotion. He calls it a team effort, especially when staff are five to six months away from home. Eckhart also displayed a great sense of humor. If you would like to read my published travel articles about this cruise and the places visited, check out my website, whattravelwriterssay.com. And if you would like to view countless pictures taken during this journey, visit my Pinterest boards at pinterest.com slash mustang6648 slash where i have a following of 5,000 viewers and besides producing a travel podcast i'm a travel columnist for troy media and i have been published in every major newspaper across canada including the globe and mail toronto star and the toronto sun i've been published in national geographic traveler buffalo spree stitches west of the city seniors review and hamilton burlington's view magazine with hundreds of reviews, photos, and helpful votes, I have earned TripAdvisor's top contributor badge and am considered an expert in both hotel and restaurant reviews. We conclude each podcast with an appropriate travel quote. Today it's from J.R. Tolkien, English writer, poet, and university professor, best known as the author of classics The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. He said, Not all those who wander are lost. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, contact me at mjk6648 at gmail.com. That's mjk6648 at gmail.com. Happy travels and tune in again next week for another What Travel Writers Say podcast.